Hello and welcome to Climate Avengers. My name is Alina Folks, your guide and host as we discover how founders and investors are moving the needle on climate change. I'm talking with individuals who are proving that people and planet are compatible with scalable, investable businesses. I know what that means firsthand. My entire career has been in climate, and I've been through a traditional Fortune 200 company, and I've founded a climate tech company, Utility API. I raise capital for it from angels and venture firms, as well as non-dilutive capital. I also worked with Tesla and scaled operations globally. Elon told me good job. Now, I show people how to make money and save the world at the same time. Over the past couple of years, I've been digging into investing in this space and exploring opportunities to deploy capital and invest capital and make that capital grow and also save the planet. And these are the stories that need to be told because it is possible that you can do both. You can make money and save the world at the same time. So you know, by listening here, you are now a Climate Avenger. Avenge the climate with us. Welcome in. For this week, I'm talking with Christine Boyle, who went from being a founder to a funder. And just to kick things off, Christine, where are you at right now? Hi, Elena. Good to be here. Um, I'm recording today from the uh, shores of Lake Washington up in Seattle. Fantastic. I just wanted to quickly call that out in case we do hear more seaplanes. I love that. It just uh, takes us out of our our mundane and thinking about being on the water. Yeah. If you listen carefully, you could actually hear one right now. (laughs) Perfect timing. (laughs) Yeah. Fantastic. And just for all the listeners, I'm in in Southern Oregon. So this is a uh, report from the West Coast. So Christine, go ahead. uh, Give us a quick introduction of yourself. So uh, I am an entrepreneur, mostly and primarily in the water space. So I um, was in academia, spent my graduate school years at University of North Carolina. And during that time, just got very deep into water data, deep, deep, deep into water data um, and the economics of water. So ended up coming out of that graduate program with uh, an idea, a small idea that I uh, transformed into a company. That company was Valor Water Analytics, and we can talk more about what I did there. And uh, so just been a kind of water entrepreneur now for the last 10-ish years um, with various deviations and parts of the journey therein that I'm sure we'll get into today. Absolutely. And where are you today? What's your current role? So my current role is fresh. So thank you for asking. Um, as of May 2nd, and today's May 25th in, uh, <laughs> in, in, in real world, um, I am a partner for Burnt Island Ventures, which is an early stage water technology fund um, founded by Tom Ferguson and funding the best water entrepreneurs globally. And for the past five years, just before that, I was a VP at, at Xylem. Um, which is a industrial water company really taking some big steps into digital. So, you know, the acquisition of my company and the role that I played at Xylem as far as advanced, advancing their digital portfolio has been kind of what I've been up to. But, you know, again, all in the water space. So taking those molecules and making them digital. <laughs> measure, measure, measure. Yes. Yes. And we met oh so long ago through a startup accelerator called Tummel, where Utility API was going through there. Valor had been through there. And uh, that accelerator has since evolved into the Urban Innovation Fund, which uh, Tummel and Urban Innovation Fund, female-founded, female-run venture fund, $200 million under assets now, just quickly calling them out because it's great to see them grow as well over the past quite many years. I'm not going to count them. And, uh, <laughs> and so well, and I'll um, double yeah. down on that because okay. uh, Urban Innovation, I went through Tummel and then Urban Innovation Fund was um, participated in my seed round when I was running Valor. So, you know, they're, they were in for, for the journey and um, are doing amazing things. Perfect. So let's dive into that a little bit more. So tell us about the journey of Valor 
you had that idea in grad school. How did that turn into a company? Well, I think it's a, probably an important place to start is that, you know, I've always been entrepreneurial. So was raised in a family that ran businesses, uh, was raised by a father who was a serial entrepreneur. You know, we ran everything from restaurants to newspapers to real mm-hmm. estate companies. Like, so building something, going through sort of the formative aspects and years of a nascent company, you know, kind of core entrepreneurial process uh, was familiar to me. And believe me, my dad was dismayed when I decided to go to spend seven years in grad school because there wasn't a lot of revenue going on during that period of time. But um, (laughs) so even during grad school, I I seemed to, I started a small consulting company and I really had my eye on uh, what could I commercialize, you know, which probably isn't what most grad students are thinking about, but that's uh, where I was heading. So I ended up working with a number of utilities around the state of North Carolina at the, while I was at the school of government there, you know, it was one of these things where we produced this economics report for them for seven utilities. And lo and behold, when we were sitting with them, they flipped to the back and I had come up with this set of data anomalies that I had found while I was conducting their analysis. And they really didn't care that much about all the like highbrow economic analyses. They just were like fascinated with all the data anomalies that I had found and how I had monetized those and were pointing out like how this would impact their, their business. So kind of fast forward, I ended up getting a license from the University of North Carolina and starting kind of, I don't know, throwing spaghetti at the refrigerator around how to productize these various data analytics of utility billing data. Hired a wonderful woman named Renee Jutra to help me with some of the data science and programming. And, you know, this, this idea of product market fit is one that's really interesting. So I had a number of ideas. I had moved out to California and was during the drought. Um, this was, the 2011, 12, sort of the height of what you could call one of the very, the many California droughts that, 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 that California goes through. So that's kind of like where I, I had a product market fit idea. I got to California, California utilities were suffering terribly from not only the drought, but the impacts of the drought and what that meant financially, as far as uh, them losing revenue because they were selling less water. So the monetization of the data that I had been um, working with ended up turning into real revenue for utilities if they could address this. Um, and I also had created and developed an, uh, an, a specialized algorithm for detecting when meters fail. So that began to sort of grow into a much more sort of rich data science application. So at the end of the day, utility could hire my company. We would come in and on a regular basis, screen their data to understand where all different sorts of revenue loss was occurring. The product was called Hidden Revenue Locator. Um, don't call me a marketing genius <laughs> because I was a little on the nose with my uh, product name, but that's what it was called. And it was it was quite successful. You know, we ended up selling it like widely, not only in California, but across the country, public, private, big, small, you know, Northeast, Southeast, Southwest, you name it. We were, we you know, we, we grew the business and it, and, it, um, and it was a lot of fun. So- and then in 2018, ended up selling to Xylem. Gotcha. And in the water tech space, I feel like there's not a lot of companies in the water tech space in the U.S. And tech companies or venture capital, the Silicon Valley firms haven't been that interested in that sector just because of how regulated it is and how many different actors there are within it. So could you just kind of share a little bit about that journey of fundraising and um, being in a sector where there wasn't a lot of tech. The minute you said the word utility, you know, funders would sort of get this look on their face and, and run run the other way. Um, I think that some of the timing was right for me because if you recall at the in that period of time, like Opower had done pretty good. And I, I mm-hmm. think you're, you're <laughs> we're, we're riding that wave like we all were. So Opower had sh- shown the success story of, leveraging utility data, selling to Oracle, some of the things that had happened with that. So um, there were a couple things falling into place. But that being said, the water sector, if you think of it as uh, utility oriented, certainly there's just sort of the, the you know, the typical, well, they're risk averse, procurement cycles are slow, et cetera, et cetera. I would say the countermeasures there are a few. One is, although procurement 
cycles are slow. Part of my entrepreneurial process was to figure out how to hack that and how to do business with utilities faster than it had been, than had been done before. And so I would say I was fairly successful at that. And then just speaking for the water sector more broadly, nowadays we know that water isn't just selling to utilities. It's, you know, industrial ag, food and bev, data centers, retail and commercial, or sorry, consumer facing water. So I think we've kind of taken a more broad look at what water is in our society and, 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 and as a business too. But I was able to overcome the speed to market that was of concern to a lot of uh, VCs. So, And what went into that? What was kind of that journey that you that you tested, that you hacked? So like, I think the first thing is I had been quite, you know, I would say fairly well established in North Carolina. I had, you know, my network and, you know, was part of the conference circuit, had probably been and visited, you know, 10, 20 utilities in North Carolina. So when I moved out to California, I felt like it was a pretty cold start, which I would not advise when you're trying to start a business in, in a very networked sector. So I realized very quickly I needed to like, develop my network. So just hit the, I hit the conference circuit. I ended up joining several committees with American Waterworks Association, Cal Nevada, and which I'm the leader of now. So, you know, a lot has happened in the last uh, 10 years. I became an insider in the sector. I didn't ever position myself as like, oh, I'm a technologist. I'm not part of the sector. I said right away, I'm a water professional. I am part of your sector. And I was able to get meetings and just like kind of network very effectively. And with that, I also figured out a, a fairly uh, fail-safe way for utilities to do business with me. They, I never believed in free pilots, so we didn't do free pilots, but we were able to you know, work within the parameters of procurement within a utility and take what was often, let's say, a, I don't know, six to nine month procurement process. And I was often able to close in more like, I don't know, what, 12 weeks through just procurement process insight <laughs> and uh, being able to like get meetings and get get in the door at utilities like very quickly. If the problem was deep enough they, and they wanted my help, they were going to take my meeting. So I, I love that you didn't do pilots or unpaid pilots. I think a lot of entrepreneurs can fall into that trap. So how did you position a paid pilot with these companies that that are older, that are entrenched, that do have long procurement processes? So like that simple question, I feel like there's so much to talk about. We could have a whole uh, podcast on pilot trap, but um, yes. So a couple of things <laughs> was that we had raised capital, you know, we'd, we'd raised some capital, but our cost structure of when we deployed wasn't conducive to a SaaS model, which was sort of the, the you know, and still is the preferred revenue model of like the recurring revenue. But the fact was that from a cost basis, it cost me $8,000 to stand up the model, get out the data integrations going, you know, get our front end deployed. And then after that, our cost sunk to, you know, the cost of cloud, basically. And so I was frustrated that, that I was feeling so pressured to run a SaaS model, which I wanted to but it didn't match our cost structure. So from a cash flow point of view, it, it was difficult uh, uh, as, a, as a company. So we were able to charge at least to cover our costs in you know that integration fee sort of setup fee so that our cash flow matched our, our, our cost structure. So that's one thing. And then as far as the pilots, it was a lot of experimentation, and, but I stopped calling anything pilot. I just called it kind of like a phase one deployment because that, you know, I, it's not like trickery or anything, but it's like, oh, well, if I call it phase one, then obviously there's a phase two, three, four, you know, like smart psychology. Like to, yeah, real, real deep stuff. Um, but I was just trying to set things up in a way directionally that I wanted them to go. Um, we tried to do the um, kind of automated uh, opt-in for continuation. Utilities never let us, <laughs> but you know, but even with that, we tried to set it up so that as we deployed a phase one, it became as close to kind of a no brainer that you would continue through to, you know, meeting X, Y, and Z proof points that you would continue to phase two, which would maybe be a one year, two year contract, and then longer and longer and longer. So 
we just tried to set it up so it didn't seem so choppy um, and as much sort of continuity in the service as, as we could provide. And that's, that's how we did it. And we were fairly successful. We could, we could start with either a short p- period of time or a subset, in our case, of meters that we would analyze. So we could kind of make things the right size that, that the utility was comfortable. And then, and then assuming we were successful in those and we did define what that looked like, we would, we would you know, march ahead with you know, full adoption as soon as we could. And I did not want to waste any time there. Like we were very focused on that, that renewal point where we could move from phase one to phase two. Makes sense. And in terms of sizing at the beginning, was there a certain like utilities can have like a discretionary spend if it's under a certain amount, you don't have to be, you don't have to go through as laborious a process. Were you very sensitive to that level? Yeah, that's, I mean, that insight I think is well understood now, but there's this sort of discretionary or, uh, or there's a couple of things. There's either sort of signature authority or delegation of authority to as high of a leader as you can get to because the amount of zeros <laughs> goes up uh, the, the higher in the, the hierarchy you are at a utility. So we, 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 we certainly wanted to do that. And we also did have sort of patents and algorithm on our algorithm. So we could do some sole sourcing for a, a certain amount of time as well. So those are some of the things we kind of put in place to move quickly. So besides California with the drought, was it just anyone else in the U.S. that would be interested in this product? What what was that broader go-to-market strategy? You know, I didn't, we didn't have, we weren't big enough to do kind of a spray and pray. Like we tried to be very targeted and segmented and who we went after. Um, so there were a couple, couple theories that we were segmenting under. One was utilities that were regulated under certain non-revenue water um, conditions because non-revenue water, what we were doing was part of non-revenue water. It was called the parent loss detection. So we could go to Texas, Georgia, and California and, and have that conversation, not only about revenue, but around sort of the compliance with these regs. And then the other uh, kind of uh, hypothesis we were testing was just private water utilities. And there are some very big ones you know, Suez, Golden State, American Water, um, those. And so we were successful also doing business with the privates because, you know, for every hidden dollar we found, it was a a dollar back into their um, OPEX budget. So we also found that, you know, that hypothesis kind of proved proved successful. Targeting is so important. It's so important. And that did put us all over the country because they were operating in places like um, Indiana and Missouri and... New York and New Jersey and all kinds of places. So that did sort of, but our sales efforts were targeted only to those. We, we were just, you know, I was quite rigorous in the sales process. So uh, that, that targeting, it just like you said, was, was, was critical because we just didn't, we didn't have enough bandwidth to spend the kind of time we would need to with all the utilities. We had to be pretty, uh, pretty, pretty targeted. And what size was the company at that point where you started that process? Well, at that point, it was just me doing sales and probably like two or three <laughs> developers. And, you know, once I had my, uh, you know, the client roster was hitting, well, I think it was at the point where I actually signed a, a very large private water utility. I immediately hired people who were very good at project management, client success, um, and ended up, you know, but we were tiny at that point. I think we were probably like six, six people. Yeah. And then what was that arc or that beginning of the conversation for acquisition? Oh, acquisition. Well, it's interesting. So we had part, we'd also deployed like a partnership strategy, seeing if we could, uh, I remember there's a big conference every year in the water sector called ACE, AWW ACE. And it was one summer we went to ACE and we had a strategy to talk to every water smart meter provider in North America. And we did, we were able to walk into their booths find as high level a person as we could talk to. And we were able to have those conversations. So we ended up signing a, our first AMI partnership deal, you know, as a channel to sell to their AMI customers with Aclara, um, which is and a what is AMI? provider. AMI is automated meter infrastructure. So when we, when we talk about smart metrology, it's the fact that you have a radio on your meter that sends typically hourly readings to a, uh, to the, let's just say to the cloud um, without a meter reader needing to intervene. So that's what the AMI 
means. And, and or mesh network, right? Uh, did they use mesh? mesh? Yeah. That's what or electric meters you, use. So that's why I was just curious. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's mesh, fixed network, cellular, like the commute that's, those are the communication channels, but in any case, it, it makes the meter reader, uh, you know, kind of redundant. So, um, but yeah, mesh is totally one of them. Not much in water cause it doesn't have the power to send the signal, but, um, gotcha. Yeah. We went, we met with all these companies. Interestingly, um, you know, census, Eclara, Badger and Itron were the, the big ones. And we met with all them. We ended up signing a partnership with Eclara and doing quite a bit of business and go to market with Eclara. But since you're asking about acquisition, it's just ironic, I find at least, that the company we ended up selling to was Census and Xylem. And it was not one of the companies that we had partnered with. We were had been in the market. And I think people, we'd again, like I'd spoken as an expert on a number of panels. I'd met and sat on panels with people from Xylem and, and got to know those, those folks water is in a huge sector. So you can kind of, you know, get to know people fairly, fairly swiftly. At some point it was just, you know, I was asked to go to lunch with, with someone who I didn't know was on their corporate development team, but turns out he was, um, <laughs> and, and got, a, 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 a like, it was almost like, it's like a, it's like a dating scheme. It's like, so like, are you interested? And I said, Oh, I don't know if I'm interested. He's like, well, think about it. You know, if, if, if you, if this coffee date works, maybe we can go out to dinner next. And so it was like kind of a gradual getting to know one another, but it didn't take terribly long. That lunch was in August of 2017. And by February of 2018, we had closed. So, so it was fairly swift at that point. And if you were following what Xylem was doing at that point, they actually had acquired six companies. So we were just in a window when they were doing some uh, heavy shopping, <laughs> let's just say. With bigger companies, it does seem like it, it does depend for acquisitions about that, that timing. If they are, if they're forward thinking who the leaders are, all of that, it, it can be so dependent on that. Yeah. And it, it's like the, the timing, your position in the market, I guess like sort of entrepreneurial process and like how well and rigorous you've been about your company. Uh, you can kind of talk about you know, M&A stuff and <laughs> due diligence. It's like, oh my God, it's very, very rigorous, you know, but, um, but timing is, is a lot of it. Did you have competitors in the space that they were also looking at, or was it because of how you had positioned the company, you were the right, right company for them? You know, that was the, one of the very strange things over, I didn't run Val for very long. I ran it for five years. And one of the things that we were doing was creating a marketplace because you know, even the world of data analytics was nascent at that time. It sounds so silly now to even say that, um, but it was fairly nascent. And certainly the uh, the like revenue analytics that we were doing, there was a company that got bought by Oracle who was doing it in, on the electricity side, but there was no one doing it in water. And, off, you know, now that I'm on the funder side, like that feels weird. You You actually want a marketplace. You want competition. You want... Um, an active set of competitors, both because the utility will need a, a certain set of bidders in order to uh, you know, procure products. So oddly enough, we didn't have big competition. We had some more traditional players, like like companies who would go out and like test meters physically. There's a company now that has like a vibrating sensor that they put on large commercial meters and order Olea, great company that's doing some of that work, but it never has been a particularly active marketplace. So when it came to what Xylem was shopping for, they were trying to kind of fill a slot in their non-revenue water portfolio. Like we were pretty obvious choice. Then you stayed on with them, continuing to grow this business offering within Xylem. Correct. As well as, and I ended up taking on the product that I had, had built, as well as several other digital products within the Xylem portfolio. So tell me more about that process and what that was like going from an entrepreneur to being maybe an intrapreneur within a larger company. Let's see where to begin. Um, well, I would say, first of all, I, I ch Xylem chose us, but we also chose Xylem. Xylem has a, a wonderful culture. Um, it's solely focused on the water business, which I also liked. Uh, their various staff, you know, everything from their software development teams to um, management had come out and spent a lot of time with us. 
So when I refer to it as dating, I really was serious. Like it was like, it was like a courting. And so it was mutual, you know, we, we chose mm-hmm. each other and I and it very intentionally chose what, what I thought and what I was right about, like a very good company for my team to uh, merge with. So we, we did, we were, we stayed in our San Francisco offices and kind of operated, you know, fairly independently for not terribly long, maybe like six or eight months. And then, you know, the promise I had a North Star as a, as a founder, my North Star was I wanted to have my technology deployed on as many meters globally as fast as I could. And so one of the promises of Xylem was to, uh, you know, partner with a company that had this global reach and be able to do that. So I was really excited about that. And so ended up, you know, getting a lot of global exposure, like very fast, like, you know, meetings in the uh, UK and Singapore. And we ended up deploying, you know, in the Philippines, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, all over the, the world, like fairly quickly. And so to me as an entrepreneur, like that was, that was pretty exciting, you know, to, to, to see my product have that kind of reach that quickly. Um, for the team, I, you know, I, a few of the folks include are still at Xylem, so it's, it's a wonderful place. Um, adopt, uh, kind of brought in and integrated into like the data science team, the software engineering team, the um, the delivery team. Um, so now everyone that came in from Valor has been promoted and are having very nice careers in the water space at Xylem. I, you know, I think that it, it takes some getting used to. There's a lot of stakeholders in a big company. You obviously don't have as uh, fast of decision-making discretion over anything. You know, there's a lot more deliberation and, and uh, kind of process, but I would not give back that experience for anything. Um, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's amazing to see what you can do when you're on a stage that's that global. And so I really enjoyed my time there and, and have like deep faith that Xylem is, making the right moves digitally, even, even now. Um, so, and they, there's some big announcements going on with Xylem and I'm excited for, for the future of, of what, what, what holds. Um, we ultimately, you know, I started just to get that entrepreneurial kind of itch and burn. I was like, I need to go out and, and just sort of do more kind of independent entrepreneurial activities. And, and Xylem was very supportive of that. So it's, it's, it's been, been a good, very good partnership for several years now. Yeah, sounds like it's been a great partnership. And how has that evolved now to where you are today? Gosh, I feel like this, my career has been, I, I never could have written it, you know, but it's like, yeah, you go academia and then entrepreneur, went to the big co and like big industrial. And now yeah, I, I was very involved with Imagine H2O, which is an accelerator based in San Francisco for early stage water tech. 2015, my company won their their prize, so that was a lot of fun, and that's when I met that team: Scott Bryan, Tom Ferguson, Tam and Petchett, that whole group. So I remained very close to that group for years. Um, participated as a judge, as a mentor, coach, speaker, like trying to help the next generation of water entrepreneurs as much as I possibly could. So when Tom Ferguson kind of spun out of Imagine H2O and started Burn Island. I came on as a, a venture partner and joined the investment committee. And I really liked it. I think that, you know, when you're thinking of us, when you're thinking of your entrepreneurial self, you want some kind of like, do I have any unfair advantage in the marketplace? Whatever it is. And my competitive advantage now is that I've had a successful entrepreneurial journey. And so that's how I thought about what I wanted to leverage. I was thinking, do I want to start another product? I want to be the CEO of a company, like what do I want to do next? But I really got grounded in the fact that like being a water entrepreneur was my uh, sort of secret sauce. (laughs) And so that's what I decided to kind of move over to the fun side, both to, you know, use my knowledge to like pick uh, the best companies in the world, but foremost to spend time with those founders and to sort of try to avoid any pitfalls, overcome challenges and give them as every advantage that I could, you know, with our whole team at Burnt Island to make being part of Burnt Island, like give you that unfair advantage in in being successful in the water space. Yeah. Tell me more about 
Burnt Island and the investment thesis and and the approach? So Burnt Island, uh, I think we're one year plus old, raised fund one in 21 and 22 and deployed. We funded 18 companies um, uh, in the, you know, in the last, let's say, 18 months and mostly in areas around industrial uh contamination and pollution avoidance, everything from PFAS to oil and gas and those sort of pollutants, um, a few digital, a few consumer facing. And the like, this question is sort of like, why us, why now, you know, as far as the thesis? Well, water hasn't had much of its own funding sources for many years in, in tech. And the thesis there is that water has been underfunded for many years. And with the pressures of climate, water scarcity, heightened consumer awareness over health, things like this, that that we are at a tipping point where funding in water is not only good for earth, but is also like good for business. And the 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 drivers for change that perhaps the global community had been waiting for, well, they've arrived. Um, and there are many, many drivers behind why both utilities and consumers and industrials are adopting water tech at a faster pace than they ever have, but they're all happening, <laughs> which is really good and makes these companies not only, you know, important for sustainability, but sort of pivotal for economies and health. I like to say the rising tide lifts all boats, and that's the interest in mm-hmm. climate. It's the interest and in pressure from what we're seeing with massive um, destructive events like hurricanes or wildfires. And right. in this case, a rising tide has a direct influence on water quality. So um, it's also a, a something that happens. I've, I've spent some time um, in Florida and the Caribbean now. And when you're living on a boat, having fresh water is so crucial. And you don't really understand that until you aren't connected to a municipal water system. It's extraordinary how your mind changes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Elena, I'm going to have to get you a um, atmospheric water generator machine from Spout. They just launched their atmospheric water generator, which takes water from even like salty, humid air or various air. And and like it's like, poof, you have a, a nice pitcher of water and it does take power, but you can use solar to do that. And um, and it's perfect for your Caribbean boat adventures. So. Thank you. It's also here in Oregon. I'm on top of a butte that's at 5,500 feet and the valley is at 4,000. And even at 4,000, the wells at 220 feet are starting to go dry. This is the Klamath River Basin. And so it is, it's fascinating what's happening. But I look out and I literally see fields of alfalfa and people burning fields and people just spray watering this alfalfa. And it's part of the Klamath water system, which is federal mm-hmm. because it crosses lines, uh, state lines. And then there's four dams being taken down. It's um, water is become, I'm just very conscious of this water system now. And I feel like most people aren't aware of that or they're of what like water systems they're even a part of. So I know that's a little, little tangent there, but it, it becomes very real, very quick. And even here, so we just have water catchment. And right now we do get water from a neighbor's well and haul it up here. And then we have a water filtration system, a Berkey. And so I just want to use, you said spout was it the name? Spout is, spout is a atmospheric water generator that, and I have one in my house. In one of the hums you might hear running is my is my AWG machine. But it's and I was going to ask you: Do you test your well frequently for water quality? We do not. It is a neighbor's well, and that's why we put it through the um, like the carbon filter in the Berkey. Everything is okay. filtered through there. Okay. Yeah. Well, Klamath. I mean, if you're ever a uh, like a water historian looking up what's happened with the Klamath, both over, uh, you know, disputes, um, interstate boundary conditions, the uh, plight between agriculture and municipal. I mean, the Klamath is sort of like ground zero for amazing history of the U.S. water system and, and, and unfortunately, water conflict. So. Absolutely. And we're just very aware of like the, the people that were here before, the Modoc and the Klamath. 
and mm-hmm. the history and their origin story with the the sucker fish that is native here. And mm-hmm. it just, it goes even beyond just fighting for water. It is more spiritual. It's more engaged. It's a whole life style, a whole way of living. And it's amazing to see here. And and we just, we picked this piece of property because of other conditions that we set. And we, we walked into this interesting water um, situation. When you say that, I think for for anyone who's listening who maybe has a, a a young person that is thinking about careers and things like that, I think that, I mean, I obviously, it goes without saying, but I'm like a diehard water sector professional. And I think water, because of some of the things you said, like you can be an engineer, a scientist, a uh, spiritual person, like, a, you know, uh, either native or a priest or whatever, you could be a NGO worker, you could be water just sort of encompasses all parts of human and and animal life. And I think that that's why it's like a really fascinating line of business to be in, but no matter what like aspect of it, you might be drawn to join the water sector. (laughs) Yes. It's so primal after air, we have water is what we need. So Whenever I go down to Mount Shasta, I stop at the Sacramento Headwaters. And that is just one of the most extraordinary places to ever visit. Ooh, I have to do that. I, I've driven over Mount Shasta several times, but I, I hadn't seen that. So I'll make a point of that. Honestly, it's one of my favorite places in the entire world. And it's just fresh, pure water pouring out of a rock, like the side <laughs> of a hill. Yeah. And then that goes all the way to San Francisco. And it's just amazing to think about all of the uses of that water and that journey of that water. Um, it is it is quite something. So nice little travel tip plug in here. So I'd like to circle back to um, to your journey and how you got started in climate and water. You know, it does go back to I uh, to traveling. You know, I um, spent time traveling in college. I was a Chinese language major, so I was not you know, a water professional. Jenna. <laughs> yes. I was a language, uh, a language student. So lo and behold, found myself traveling, you know, across China, uh, in the late nineties. And no way. Um, oh my gosh. So yeah. I, I studied abroad in Beijing and, um, I <laughs> love okay, we had climate never- and China. Oh my God. Yes. I'm like, Chindama. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was, it was 2009 when I was there. Um, it traveled quite extensively as well. So, um, I love that, that bridge. And then I did end up working on the, the Shanghai factory with Tesla. So that was fun to, I was oh, only m- like cool. moderately fluent at one point, but it, it quickly declines after, uh, after you, uh, aren't speaking it on a daily basis. So, yeah. Time is the enemy of a language skill. No doubt about that. Um, <laughs> so what took you to China? Tell me more. Well, I, you know, so I'd studied the language and I was a Mandarin speaker. So I was, gosh, at that point I'd done a study abroad. And then, um, and then I was back years later doing research on waterborne illnesses in Guangxi. But it was in the early years when I was traveling around when it, you would like, take a shower and you kind of feel like kind of covered in grease and grime, like after your shower, being fascinated, you know, you, you know, the water wasn't potable, you're, you couldn't drink the water, but just sort of seeing that the sort of levels of pollution and scarcity is for, especially in Northern China, just impacted me in a way that mm. as a young person, you know, the light bulb kind of goes off and it's like, is there something here that I can make into a career? And so I went back and I used to flip through the back of the Economist magazine and kind of dream about some of those jobs, like the World Bank and the International Development Bank and some of the things. So I ended up sort of connecting that passion and and sort of humanitarian feeling that I had to, you know, the study of uh, economics, statistics and math. (laughs) And lo and behold, became a, you know, a a water resource economist. But that was going to give me an entree into things like working at the World Bank which I did for a brief amount of time, but then ultimately decided to go more towards a, a, a business line. But sort of for me, climate and water was very connected to just uh, humanitarian and the plight of humanity to be dignified, clean, healthy, uh, have good food and things like that. So 
that was sort of the the driver. And then, you know, parlayed that into a, a career. What else would you like to talk about today? Well, something that's been on my mind, Elena, since you asked, thank you, is, you know, this idea of tech and like whether it's climate tech or water tech, as I'm getting deeper into kind of understanding companies and who's successful, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me is like just entrepreneurialism and what having a having a tech company, having a technology, let's just say, does not make you a company. And having even the best technology in the world led by people without like strong entrepreneurial process is also not going to be a great company. So I think one of the things that I'm really interested in right now is just exploring the entrepreneurial journey, the entrepreneurial process. Like what's the difference between like a, you know, a gold standard tech with a substandard entrepreneur and vice versa. Because I think that we could all look and see the the entrepreneurial journey, whether it's sort of your ability to um, commercialize and be successful in, in sales in the marketplace, whether or, or marketing for that matter, your ability to inspire people, employees, your customers. Um, I think that kind of going deeper into what makes an entrepreneur successful uh, or makes someone a successful entrepreneur to me is really interesting. And as we're looking at technologies, um, I'm certainly seeing that, you know, that is always a part of the equation, but this idea of being an entrepreneur, what it takes to become an entrepreneur, to be a successful entrepreneur, the sacrifice and, and the um, sort of irrationality that's embedded in many entrepreneurs, it also is fairly fascinating. And, you know, it, it sort of just became really cool with Silicon Valley. Like, you know, they're, they're just printing money down there. Like, you know, some young man typically with a PowerPoint deck gets a couple million bucks to go start a company, but like, that's not entrepreneur either. <laughs> and so that's just sort of a, a train of thought I've had. And I, you know, as I was thinking about being a grad student and being an entrepreneur, I often had this trope around, you know, this irrational optimism, thinking that you could beat the odds, your ability to believe in uh, deferred gratification, you know, that you will sacrifice now because in, you know, two years, 10 years, 20 years, you'll, you know, reap the riches. You know, all these things are pretty interesting to me. And and, and I, I'll be studying that and honing that more carefully as I get more exposure to many, many, many entrepreneurs, both those that are successful and, and those that aren't. That's been pretty interesting area for me. Is that what you're seeing as you start to review the different companies coming in to Burnt Island? Yeah, we. I mean, we certainly see, I, I mean, I've seen it just personally over the years too, like just through networks of the different companies that I sort of just track uh, personally. But then at Burnt Island, yeah, we certainly is part of our investment process are looking to see what's your competitive differentiation on the tech, but then also like what's your entrepreneurial process that 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 shows us that irregardless of if you've got a like gold standard or a silver standard of tech that that you have what it takes to meet that kind of commercial uh commercial rigor sales revenue numbers um charisma things like that too that's interesting what you said is that you have this set of companies that you kind of keep tabs on tell us more about that well just you know it's like both i mean i will tell you i was I was kind of coming of age at the same time as Elizabeth Holmes. So just like watching that train wreck happened was cautionary for me, you know, so you're kind of just like the Silicon Valley, like she was on stage the same year that I did TechCrunch Disrupt, which I think was uh, mm. 2014 or 15. So, you know, people that I was aware of, I mean, of course, we're all seeing what, what Elon does, but that's different. That's like a different scale than sort of more of the, the local, like a lot of the water companies was always either doing business with or tracking or friends with, we would go have, you know, a glass of wine or a coffee and just help each other and see how things were going. But you kind of sort of get a sense of like, like a feeling that I might've had during that point was a point and now it evolved into a signal and then it evolved into a pattern. And I'm like, Oh, the, that person did that then. I thought it was a little strange, but now several years later, I'm like, that was a signal that probably things weren't going great, you know? So just sort of evolving and, and, and seeing these companies either progress or fail to progress over the years is, has been insightful. 
it certainly was a special time and place uh, there with the Capitol and the conferences and the tech fever. It was it was right. And since you asked, I think another thing that I've been thinking about, too, is and we get this question a lot is like, why is water not more prominent in the climate tech conversation? Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. I think that it is becoming more prominent. But if, if you know, if I go to events in the Bay Area or, uh, you know, we're going to have some different like New York Climate Week and different things coming up, it'll be interesting to see if if water, water tech is more talked about, the companies become more prominent. I mean, certainly from a sustainability and sort of nature point of view and human point of view, water is at the epicenter. But in the sort of tech funding discussions, it, it's often sidelined. And I and I hope that we can bring water, water technologies and sort of water mitigation strategies uh, further up the chain as far as being part of uh, climate tech discussions. But I don't think that that's we're not quite there yet. I think part of that is even in Silicon Valley, the there's a perception that water is is supplied through Hetch Hetchy and it's there and they don't have to worry about it as much. But as things start to change or continue to change, there could be a bit more interest there. And then the other thing that just came to mind was really more about stormwater management and stormwater runoff. Mm-hmm. This past uh, this past winter was an insane amount of rain and atmospheric rivers coming to the Bay Area. So I wonder if that's going to be raising water in the Silicon Valley consciousness. Yeah, I think those drivers like like, you know, those sort of pollution events from runoff. There's this whole regulatory situation going on now with a, a, a these forever chemicals called PFAS. And it seems as if water is much more at the either the tap or the footstep, literally, as far as stormwater of um, impacting people's lives to the sense where even, you know, investors might say there's got to be a better way. And so that's what we think that there is a better way. Honestly, I I hadn't thought about more that stormwater or water catchment side of things, but it's so crucial, especially when we do have bigger deluges from from storms. The water systems are changing so quickly. And in ways that we can't even predict because the models, we don't have any reference for it. Yeah. I mean, like what happened in Northern California in the Sierras this last year, like, I don't think any models predicted that. Um, We do have, I think we're, you know, in the water space, we're getting away now from even relying on models. Like we'd much rather just have as many real-time sensor technologies as we could possibly have. So you're relying less on models and have much more like, in real time mitigation uh, strategies like different catchments or algorithms for sort of the supply and demand of water, ways to deal with, uh, you know, like high spring runoff, different things like that. Because I think that the operators of systems would say that the models are, are not up to the job, but we hope that real time technologies can substitute for those or at least complement those so that you can mitigate the you know, pollution, scarcity, contamination, crisis uh, through ways that are more appropriate for like what's going on with, with, with the climate. And that all comes back to being able to measure all of this, like you said, real-time monitoring and what do you do with that data and how do you analyze it? So it makes sense in yeah. terms of needing to apply technology and zeros and ones to a system that is so connected to the earth and the thermal systems of the planet. So- since you're the first investor that I'm talking with, I would like to also open up the mic for you to really tell potential founders or portfolio companies mm-hmm. what you are looking for and how they can be best prepared to approach you for capital. Hmm. Okay, good question. Um, I think that when we're looking at companies, we're looking for a deep understanding of the problem. You know, like, are you, gosh, are you trying to create, you know, atmospheric water for consumers? Are you trying to mitigate new membrane technology for uh, dairy farms and things going there? Or uh, we have a, um, and that the company I'm referencing there is called uh, Zwitterco. Uh, We have a company called Doppler that is sort of 
transforming incident response in cities, especially around like water events like leaks. But we're looking for like a deep understanding of the problem space and then a founder who is almost like ridiculously qualified to solve that problem. Not because they just understand the tech, like I said, but because they like have a deep empathy for the users and the pain that that is going on and and therefore can sort of bring that not just to the technology, but the sales process, the project deployment process, the pricing, um, the sort of marketing so that they can kind of bring more, much more to the 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 company and the problem than simply uh, a, a technology solution. And then I think that differentiation is also key. Um, lots of lots going on with sensors and IoT as usual. Lots going on with sort of um, the latest in in AI. But you know, we don't. I'm not looking for a technology led solution. I'm look. I'm looking for a unique and differentiated way to solve a, a deep pain point. Um, through both the tech and sort of the entrepreneurial skill set that it would take to give you some kind of ridiculously competitive advantage over, you know, Sally and Joe and, and, and Joaquim, who also think that they can solve that problem. Like you have to be able to do it better. And are you primarily U.S. focused? No, let's see. We have, I would say that, um, gosh, over 60% have been U.S.-based companies, but we have a company in Canada called 2S. Uh, we have, and that is a, um, uh, oil and gas contamination site remediation company. Um, we have a company in the U.K. called Lair, who is a um, adhesive-based leak detection for buildings and building materials. And then we have one company in Colombia and... And always looking and scouting. I wouldn't say we have like a great presence in Asia so far. So it's mostly been sort of like Western Hemisphere. But uh, but we're in the midst of raising fund too. So we'll be certainly looking to see and perhaps expand geography as, as appropriate too. I find that interesting just because even with your company, you had spent time in Malaysia, in Singapore, and there is such an acute need in those areas, especially with Singapore, because they don't have a a source of water within the country itself. Um, and then you have different population pressures as well. Um, so that's just interesting as you are raising fund too, how you might be expanding globally. Well, and I would just point to our great friends at Imagine H2O. They do have a, um, a, a South Asian um, accelerator and they are having their big annual event uh, the first week of June. So if you are interested in what's going on in Asia, I would certainly tune into the Imagine H2O um, Accelerator and Prize and Competition, which is happening um, in June 2023 in Singapore. So we have some sort of insider look through through Imagine H2O of, of what what is exciting in, in, in Asia. And there certainly is a lot. Now that we've really, we've talked about water for, for over an hour now, I I'm thinking about, Things like Flint, I'm thinking about mm -hmm. um, microplastics and how that's entering the water supply in ever smaller amounts, uh, sizes, and difficult to filter um, sizes. So it's just amazing to, to have a conversation and really explore how many multi-billion dollar companies you can have just within water tech. I know. And it's, you know, what's going on with like, Municipal tap is really interesting in the U.S., but also globally, like, you know, it's fairly rare that you could have uh, potable water from your tap. But my work with American Water Works Association, we're certainly very proud of the fact that generally in the USA, you can turn on your tap anytime and have good, healthy, safe water to drink. Um, but that being said, it's not true everywhere. We wish it were more true, but there are more like filtration devices and testing going on so that people can understand and feel safe about their tap water. Um, and then the oceans, Elena, I can't even get started on what's going on with the oceans. And, and we haven't made any investments yet in sort of, let's say like ocean remediation, but the time will come. So an important thing that I want to cover with each of these interviews is a little bit more on the personal side, uh, because with Climate, it matters. It's big. It's hairy. It can be stressful sometimes that you aren't doing enough. 
and there can be burnout. So how have you been staying grounded and making sure that you are, are approaching this as a whole person? Yeah, I, it's I mean, especially in the, like the heyday of the entrepreneurial years when you're running your, you know, running a company, I did not adhere to uh, what they call like, what is like, you know, personal time or work-life balance. Like that wasn't a principle. I thought that's a principle that many people seem to think is important for me. It wasn't, I said, you know, I'm going to do this once or twice in my life. I'm going to have like this period of years where it's highly imbalanced. And, and, and I just, for me, I said, that's okay. You know, I had uh, people around me and a support system that held me up when I needed them to and celebrated with me, uh, you know, throughout. So, but I was working crazy amount of hours and, and traveling a ton and, 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 you know, like kind of doing, doing a lot. But even within that, I think that don't be, that don't be a jerk has always been sort of important to me because don't, you know, those that were around me, you would think that during stressful times, you know, I might fly off the handle or get mad or treat people poorly. Like I've always tried not to do that. And so the, the circle around me, whether it's relatives, other loved ones, relation, romantic relationships, like, like, you know, I try to have good time with those people. And when I'm with any of those people, like make sure that I'm with them, like not always on my phone, clicking, clicking, clicking. You know, I try to sort of segment. So when I'm doing people time, with, you know, loved one, husband, kids, relatives, I'll be with them. And then when I'm doing business, which is a lot, <laughs> believe me, I'm doing the business. Um, but then also like playing in tent, I could play a lot of tennis. Um, mm-hmm. I take vacations. I do work six days a week, but I have like one day a week that is like 100% turned off, like barely even use my cell phone, like just 100% just sort of like, you know, uh, go offline and, and enjoy myself. So I don't know if those are the measures that everyone would find acceptable for their life, but you know, I, I think I found enough that that helped keep me grounded and 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 you know content with the way things were going. Um, but life balance during that period of time wasn't really a thing for me. I will say that. I was like, no, I was like people. I was like people like who I considered like normal would say, "Don't you need that?" I said, "Well, if you're normal, you do." But what I'm doing isn't something that a normal person can do. So I can't like adhere to that principle that you have. Like, that's not the way things are going for me. So, (laughs) so that's, you know, just one has to understand thyself deeply. Yes. And I felt that kind of like as a type A personality, it's like, just lean into it and make it happen. Right. But, um, you know, eventually for me, that did lead to burnout. So I just, taking that time yeah. and then you had the pandemic and all of the the stressors there. So you can only do it for so long and you have to be conscious of that and know that there's a time to disengage. That's so true. And you know, if, if my company had, I ran it for five years and that felt very intense. I really, if I think about the, the typical lifespan of a company, you know, prior to acquisition or IPO would be more like seven to 10. That would have been like, I'm saying, what I'm saying because I sat in a role where that intensity was, was bookmarked. <laughs> you know? So I might be saying something different if, if it hadn't been bookmarked like that. If somebody wanted to get started in climate tech or as an investor in climate tech, what would your advice be? Well, you know, as far as investors go, it's funny. I, it's, I think that people who are very analytical and like exceptionally uh, smart can be investors, but you have to have really felt the pain somehow in, in this sector, whether, you know, climate and water to effectively be able to understand what companies are going through. So I think that, you know, if you want to be in climate tech, like go through the job descriptions at some companies that you think are interesting and just look and see what the qualifications are and, and see if, if, you know, maybe you need some schooling or an internship or I don't know what you might need, but you should figure out the type of job or the type of company or the type of you know, government, NGO, private company, whatever it is you think is interesting to you, like talk to people and start thinking about the type of roles that, that you might be interested in. Like, you know, people, some people want to be outside all day. Some people want to be a manager. Some people want to sit and like crunch numbers and code all day. So I think you have to just get to know, kind of go through your list. Do you want to work at, at a big company, small company? How social do you want to be? 
you want to be um, remote or in an office with people? Like, I think just career wise, you, you have to do put the work in so that you know what you want. Um, because being in climate is just like, you know, whether you want to be in health or education or whatever, you, you have to know what kind of role and what your capabilities are within that. And then once you figure that out, do the thing, Elena, just get it. Like you need the master's degree, go get it. You need the, you know, two years working as a, you know, a, you know, kind of junior level at a certain company, get qualified and, you know, you just go pound the pavement and do the work. So make it so. Yes. And as we wrap up here, what are some call to actions that you have for our listeners? Let's see. Calls to action. I think that you know, if you're if you're listening to this podcast, you're already probably kind of like uh, uh, on the boat with us. Um, but you know, we've talked a little bit about diversity. I'd say put yourself in some uncomfortable positions from time to time. You know, whether it's you know going to a new geography or entering a space that isn't traditionally a space you've entered. I would say, you know, some of us that have like, you know, I remember going into lots of places like, you know, cause I lived in China. I was often, you know, being the only white woman in the room initially might've been strange for me, but it created in me like a great amount of empathy to what it means to be the only whatever in the room. So the more you can put yourself into that role, you will have empathy for others when you see someone in the room who might be feeling that way and might make you, um, more empathetic to them feeling um, ostracized or not included or not having a voice. So I I always like that, like make yourself uncomfortable from time to time so that you can have empathy for those that, that sit in those shoes. And then for young people listening, climate tech is okay. Water tech is amazing. Get the qualifications you need to join um, in whatever realm it might be, social, legal, government, NGO, commercial. But I think the water sector is growing um, only growing more in importance as well as funding. And I, you know, so I'm excited to see if water can be more attractive to the next generation of professionals than perhaps it has been uh, uh, up till now. And I suppose for the fund itself, if there are accredited investors interested in fund two, they can reach out to you as well. Thank you, Elena, for You're remembering welcome. what my Yes, uh, Burn Island Ventures has had a very successful fund one. We're sort of at the tail end of that, having funded 18 companies. And uh, so if, you know, if, if you if being part of early stage water tech is interesting to you and fits your personal investment thesis, then please do get in touch. Is there a minimum check size? Um, I don't know. It, it probably like I think six digits plus is appropriate, though. So. Exactly. For funds. Makes sense. Yes. Um, And then for your portfolio companies, are many of them consumer focused? Um, Happy to provide a space to give them a plug as well. I know you did some of those earlier. Yeah. Let me, as far as the consumer facing ones, there are four that I will mention. Um, One is Spout, which has a uh, kind of household level atmospheric water generation. Very cool. Very sleek. Your kids will love it because they see like how water is made out of out of vapor in the air. Um, the next is called Beagle Beagle Services, which is a um, kind of a smart plumbing company. Um, so Beagle will not only service your home as far as your plumbing needs, but will install various leak detection devices to make sort of a, a smart home in the sense of uh, protected against uh, water damage. Third is Iragreen, which is a really cool um, uh, kind of landscape irrigation where it is much more water efficient because it's a 3D printed for your lawn and it and it runs in a shape that will uh, actually penetrate, you know, and cover your lawn and not spray a bunch of water onto your sidewalk or your car or whatever. So that's water saving. It also has a sort of evapotranspiration aspects that one would expect. And then we, our last consumer facing one is called Shower Stream, which is a smart shower head that will be water saving even for people, especially in hotels and other things that might have a wasteful behavior. <laughs> so basically, if you leave your shower running, it will, it will turn off. It will give you a wonderful showering experience while you're there. But for people who are prone towards wastefulness, it will, um, 
it will uh, correct those through some automation uh, aspects. So, yeah, we'll link to those in the episode description so all of our listeners can check those out. And thank you so much for being on here today. It's um, it's been a pleasure, and I'm glad we were able to cover everything professionally and personally and everything about water. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm excited for all that you're doing too. Thank you for joining me. By gaining this knowledge, you are now a climate avenger. As we all know, knowledge is power. So avenge the climate with us. Let's get the word out. Rate, review, subscribe so others can find this podcast. We are new, so every share is even more important. Help us grow and share it with the communities that you're a member of, whether it's climate or investing Slack groups, LinkedIn groups. And if you don't mind, share it with a friend or colleague so they can also join us in avenging the climate, especially if they work in climate, are a climate entrepreneur or an angel investor. If you are an accredited investor, join our rolling fund and syndicate on AngelList. If you have questions or want to talk with us, email team at climateavengers.com and Kyle or I will respond. Put your money where your values are. Make money and save the world at the same time. Let's get more capital into climate. To find out more about Climate Avengers, head over to resourcelabs.co slash climateavengers and subscribe to stay updated with new episodes and resources. Until next time. Avenge on.